0: Open your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, chapter number 14. This is the third of a three-week series on three Old Testament characters whom, interestingly enough, God elevated above all the other characters in the Old Testament. These three men, in the mind of God, were so holy, so godly, and so righteous that God lifted these three above all the other people in the Old Testament. And in Ezekiel chapter 14 and in verse 14, here's our verse, and it has been for the last two weeks and again tonight. God said, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, that if they, if they were in the land, if they were living today, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. And so God was saying the pe- my people have sinned, and I'm fixing to bring judgment on them. They're fixing to be a price to pay for these sins. Even if Noah and Daniel and Job were still living on the earth, their godliness, their righteousness would not stop my judgment from coming on the people. Now, the significance of that, do you remember back in, the old, in, the, in Genesis when God was about to bring judgment down and Abraham was praying and Abraham was interceding to God and Abraham said God I know that there's a lot of sin in the land and I know that you're going to bring judgment down but God if there are 50 righteous people in this land will you for the sake of the 50 hold back your wrath God said yes if I look down and see 50 righteous people I will not judge the people and Abraham kept going back and forth to God with lower numbers. How about 40? Okay, if there are 40. How about 30? Okay, if there are 30. How about if there are 20? Okay, if there are 20 righteous people, God said, I won't judge the people. God, let me ask you one more time. If there are 10 righteous people on the earth, will you hold back your judgment? And God said, if I look down from heaven and see 10 righteous men... Then for the, or ten righteous people, for the sake of those ten people, I will not send my judgment down. And so here, when God says, it's the same God now, God said, if I look down from heaven, and if I should even see Noah and Daniel, and then if I should see Job, now by now all three of these men were in heaven, but God was just saying, if I look down and saw three men that righteous, Their righteousness would not prevent me from judging this country. They would save their own lives, but it wouldn't have any difference on anybody else. The point, though, is God is elevating these men. God is saying to us, there's something about Noah. There's something about Daniel. There's something about Job that causes them to stand head and shoulders above others in the Old Testament. And we're trying to answer on these Wednesday night what was so special about these three men. In our study on Noah, we saw that among other great qualities he had, the main thing Noah had going for him was he walked with God. Did a whole sermon about walking with God. Last week on Daniel, he he was there in the lion's den. We saw that Daniel had convictions, and he stayed true to those convictions even when it ended up landing him in the lion's den. Even when it wasn't easy to do right, Daniel did right. Now tonight, we come to Job. Most of us are familiar with Job, and we ask ourselves this question, what was it about Job that caused God to put him in the group with Noah and Daniel, above all these other Old Testament characters? What was so amazing about Job? Well, I think the short answer to that question is this, Job survived a satanic attack against his life. That's what he did. He's, by the grace of God, Job was able to survive a satanic attack. That's what he did. And tonight, I want us to think about how he did that. How could Job have gone through all the pain that he went through and at the end of it, not only still be standing but still be loving God and still be walking with God, even though every imaginable thing had gone wrong with him. So that said, let's turn back to the book of Job. It's, Job is the book right before the book of Psalms. And so find Job chapter 1. And I want us to look at some, some verses tonight. Job chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse number 1. Job 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Job was a godly man. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. So Job had a good life, a good wife, 10 kids, lots of money, wealthiest man in the land at this time. Now, look down in verse number 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And so this is a reference, more than likely, to a group of, of angels who were coming to appear before God, and in this group... Satan himself, a fallen angel, came to the presence of God as well. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, Satan says to God, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so on this day in heaven... Now remember, Satan has been kicked out of heaven, but he still has access to heaven even today. And so Satan appears before the Lord, and they're having this conversation. And God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? In other words, God was saying, Satan, I know that you want to destroy people's lives I know there's nothing good about you. You're wicked. You're evil. You're cruel. But if you considered my servant Job? He's a righteous man. He loves me with all of his heart. And the devil says back to God, in essence, God, the only reason Job loves you The only reason he's remained faithful to you is, look how good you've been to him. You've given him a great wife. You've given him 10 kids. You've given him all this money, all these possessions. God, you've got a hedge around Job so that nothing bad can happen to him. The only reason Job loves you so much is because all the blessings you have showered on his life. And God, in different words, says to Satan, you don't understand Job. You don't know Job as well as I know Job. Job doesn't love me because of all the blessings I've given him. Job loves me just because of me. Job has a real relationship with me. He's not just in love with what I do for him or for my blessings. Job is in love with me. And so they're having this conversation. And Satan in the conversation says to God in verse 11, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And so this is really the nutshell of this book right there in that verse. Satan was saying to God, God, if you let a little calamity come into Job's life, you're going to find out he's not as faithful as you think he is. His true colors will come out. You're going to find that he doesn't love you as much as you think he does. And God gave the devil permission to bring some problems into Job's life. He just put a condition on that. He said, do not lay a hand on his person." In other words, you can't kill Job. You can bring some trouble into his life, but you can't kill him. Now, not what I'm teaching about tonight, but it's a good time for me to say, even when our adversary, the devil, brings troubles and pains and difficulties into our lives, never forget this. He can only bring into your life what God allows to come into your life. The devil had to get God's permission before he did anything bad to Job. And so don't ever look at it that, oh, I'm at the mercy of the devil. Friend, you're not at the mercy of the devil. You're at the mercy of God. And the devil can't do anything to you unless God allows him. And so in that sense, the devil is really a tool in the hands of God. He is someone that God might use to test us, to refine us, to see what's really in our hearts. But the devil doesn't have ultimate authority. Ultimate authority belongs to God. And then beginning in verse 13, this is when the bottom falls out of Job's life. It says, now there was a day when... His sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So now Job has lost his servants. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So now the sheep have been killed. And in verse 17, while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So now he's lost his camels. Now, verse 18. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And so now Job has lost his oxen, his sheep, his camels, the servants who tended to all those animals... And not even on the same comparative level of that, now Job has lost his ten children, his sons and his daughters. They have all been killed. So Job, in a single day, think about it. It's not even conceivable to us to think about what Job lost on this, on this horrible, horrible day. Now, go to the very end of Job, chapter number 42, I want us to kind of cheat tonight and jump to the end of the story and just see how it ended up with Job because it ended up quite well. In Job chapter 42 and in verse number 10, the Bible says, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And so, at the end... Job experienced complete restoration, more than restoration. Verse 12, Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. If we went back and compared that to chapter 1, he received back double what he had lost. And then in verse 13, he also had seven sons and three daughters. You might expect it to say he had 14 sons and six daughters. Because everything else was repaid twice. But when it comes to his kids, he only got seven more sons and three more daughters. You say, well, what in the world is that? Well, remember, those ten kids he lost, he didn't really lose them. They just went to heaven. So he still had 20 kids. He had ten in heaven and he had ten on earth. But at the end, he had gotten back twice what he had lost. And so the end of Job's life was quite good. Look in verse 16. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of years. Notice how verse 16 begins, those two words, after this. Say that with me. After this. In other words, after all the bad things had happened to Job. He now is receiving twice as much as he had before, and then even after that, he lived 140 years. And so we know that even after we go through unthinkable pain, unimaginable loss, experiences in life, that we would think, how in the world could this have happened to me? We know that with God's grace... There is life on the other side of those experiences. Now, the question I want us to think about tonight is how can we make it between the losses and the pain of the chapter 1 in our life all the way over to the chapter 42 where we're being blessed, we're being, we're being restored, where things are getting back to normal and we say, now this is as it should be. How can we make it from the time of heartbreak Until the time God begins to restore and God gives us back what he wants us to have. Well, I want to make five statements tonight. And I'm not going to belabor any of these. I just want to make the statements. We'll look up some scripture verses. And then I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Because some of you tonight, I would think, are somewhere between Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 42. You've had the loss. You've experienced the pain. You may still be experiencing the pain. But you haven't gotten to that point yet where God restores what was taken from you. So how do we make it between these two extremes? Well, from from Job, I want to make five statements. These are observations from his life. Five things that Job did that all of us can do. Number one, keep worshiping. Keep worshiping. Back in chapter number one. And in verse number 20, now this is right after Job has found out that he's lost his 10 kids. It says, then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. That's how they mourned back in the ancient world. And he fell to the ground and worshiped. So Job's first response to this calamity was to worship God. And in verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And so Job continued to worship God. In fact, the the reflex that Job exhibited... When he found out about what, uh, losing his ten children was immediately to worship God. He fell down on his, fa- on his face and he worshiped God. And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's something about worshiping God when you are going through intense pain and suffering that profoundly touches the heart of God. I mean, think about it. Common sense would say that's true. If a, Here's a person who has got a wonderful family, healthy as can be, great job, beautiful house, multiple cars, money in the bank, everything they need, and they come to church and we're singing one of these praise songs to God, and that person th- thinks about his or her own life and how good God has been. And they think, man, you're not kidding. God's been good to me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, we should praise God for the blessings He's given us. He's given us everything we have. And so we should be thankful for that. And God is touched by people who have been blessed giving thanks to Him. But don't you think that God would be doubly touched if a person comes to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday Maybe they don't have the ideal home situation. Maybe their health's not everything they wish it was. Maybe their kids are not going the right way, or maybe some of their kids have prematurely died. Maybe finances are not very abundant, and maybe the job is not good, or maybe there's not even a job. And then the person comes in here, and the worship leader says, let's just praise God for all the good things He's done for us. And that person's thinking, well, I'm saved I'm alive. That's important, certainly. But as I look at my life, man, I don't have as many things to be thankful for as the person on the other side of the aisle right now. But that person with those difficult circumstances still praises God. With the same intensity and with the same sincerity as the person on the other side of the room who doesn't have a problem in the world. You mean to tell me when God looks down and sees those two people praying that God's not more touched by person two than person one? Now, He's grateful for person one, but person two who is praising God through the tears and praising God in the midst of the pain. To me, that just has to touch the heart of God in an extra special way. And so I would encourage you to keep worshiping God. Now, you remember last week I told you that I was reading a book by John Bassanio, late pastor of First Baptist Church of Houston, just gone to be with the Lord in the last few weeks. And I was reading the other night a section on the pastor's prayer life pastor's prayer life. And he was telling us how he prayed and how he, you know, what time of day he prayed, how long he prayed, and all these things. And then I got to think about my own prayer life. And I thought, well, now here's how I do it. And that's how he did it. His way probably better than mine. Although mine seems to be fine, but his probably a little better. And so it's been on my mind. And the other day I was thinking about it and said to the Lord, I said, you know, I don't think I need to do exactly what Dr. Bassanio did because that was him. I have to do something that would be real for me, not just copy him. And an idea came into my mind that I'm going to share with you tonight because I think it could be a real blessing. And I think probably when this service is over, if there's anything you take from my 30 minutes of rambling on around up here, it might be what I'm about to tell you right now. God brought to my memory a verse... In 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I want you just to turn back tonight. We're going to take a little bit of time. I'll speed through the other points because I want you to see this. But in 2 Samuel, go to chapter number 7 because this this has been blessing me big time. 2 Samuel chapter number 7, this is that chapter where David said to Nathan the prophet, I want to build a house for God. In other words, David said, here I am. I'm living in a nice home. And God doesn't have a house. I want to build God a house. And so Nathan the prophet said, Well, that sounds like a great idea to me. I think God would be pleased with that. Well, God spoke to Nathan and basically said to him, Nathan, go tell David that I know his heart. I know that he wants to build a house for me. But tell him that's not my plan. Tell him that's not how it's going to happen. His son, Solomon, will actually build me a house. But tell this to David. Tell David... I am so touched by his desire to build a house for me that what I'm going to do is build a house for him. David wanted to build me a temple, a physical house, but I'm going to build David a spiritual house, an eternal house, a dynasty, a spiritual dynasty that will never end. And and God did do that, and it was through the lineage of David that Jesus Christ was born. We read in the New Testament that Jesus is called the son of David, and we talk about the line of David. And so God built David a house that's still living today, and it'll always be living in response to the fact that David wanted to do that for God. Now, after David found out what God was going to do, it touched his heart, and David thought to himself, I can't believe God would do something like that for me. God's going to build me a house. This is amazing. Friend, it it tells me this. You can't outgive God. Whatever you do for God, he'll do more for you than you could ever have done for him. But look in verse 18, because this is the verse God brought to my mind. And I can't read it without getting a little bit touched by it. It says, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house? that you have brought me this far. And so, in a very humble spirit, David says to God, God, who am I that you should build a house for me? I'm a shepherd. I'm a sinful man. Why would you? He had great But the first part of that verse, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. That verse came to my mind some time ago. And it was like God said to me, John, the one thing that you could add to your prayer life, to make it a better prayer life, would be to do what David did. To have a time each day, and I mean, I mean, I can't even say this, to have a time each day where you come and sit before me. Now, I've done everything imaginable in my life on having a quiet time. I've had journals. I've not had journals. I've read through lists. I've not done that. I would say I went for several months. The most recent thing I've done when I was really trying to do that, I had a prayer book, and I, was, and I had things I prayed for every day. But to be honest with you, what happened, what happened to me on that, my prayer book, it, it got so long that when I would go to have my prayer time every day, it was like I was just reading things to God and I don't mean this disrespectfully, and God knows this is how It almost became burdensome to do that because it's like here I am with God and here's my book and I'm going to read the same things to God today that I read yesterday. Now, if that's how you pray and it's not burdensome for you, I would say keep doing it. It wasn't burdensome for me when I started it. I'm just saying as the list grew... I just thought, man, I'm going to God, but I'm just reading the same list every day. And I can remember one day talking to my dad about that. I said, I'm frustrated with my prayer life because here's why. And he said, well, John, he said, I think the reason you're frustrated is because every day you're just reading the same thing to God. He said, I'm your father, you're my son. He said, how do you think our relationship would be if every day you came in my office with your book, and we sat down, and you just read to me out of a book. He said, "That's not how we have conversation. Not that there's anything wrong with a book, but I'm saying in addition to that, if you're a book user, he said, "What well, wouldn't we just talk? You would talk to me. I would talk to you. It would be spontaneous. it would be unscripted. It wouldn't be the same every day. It would be whatever's on my heart, whatever's on your heart. I'm your father, you're my son. We would just have a conversation." He said, "I think maybe if you could make a little tweak, it would help you in your quiet time." So I haven't forgotten that. But this sometime back, God put this on my, then King David went and stepped forth the Lord. Here's what I'm going to get, a challenge. Now, again, I almost sometimes hate it when a pastor or a preacher challenges the congregation to do something like what I'm about to challenge you to do because it may be that you don't need to do this. It may be you're already doing something better. And so, I, I think sometimes if you, like, if you took every challenge that was ever issued from one of our sermons or anybody, after a while, you would be doing 30 things every day. You can't do everything. But I'm saying if the shoe fits, wear it. Here's the challenge if you want to try something different in your prayer life. Set aside a 30-minute block of time every day. 30 minutes. That's the equivalence of one episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. That's what that comes down to, 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Turn the TV off and get your Bible and take this verse. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And do that. In a chair, I've been using my sofa at home because I crossed from my sofa above my fireplace. I have a beautiful picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, favorite picture of Jesus, I suppose, that I have. And so I've been just sitting on my sofa. Looking up at that picture, you don't have to have a picture. But I just said, now, Lord, the Bible says David sat before you. And so, I'm going to follow David's example. He was a man after your own heart. David knew how to pray. And so, God, I'm going to just sit here for 30 minutes. And if something comes to my mind that I want to talk to you about, pray about, ask you to help me with, I'm going to say it. We're going to talk about that. If I don't think of anything, I'll just sit here, and it'll be like that. I'll tell you what happened to me today. I got up, I made my bed, I started my day, read my Bible, all that, had breakfast, and I said to myself, well, I need to work on my new booklet, Lessons in the Lion's Den. Do you like that for a title, Lessons in the Lines, Den? I told you I liked my sermon last week, even though none of you did. I loved my sermon last week. (laughs) I really liked the title because it's alliterated, Lessons in the Lines." Then, And so I thought, well, Lord, I can't work on it all day because I'm preaching tonight. And so I can't just ignore the fact that I'm preaching tonight to do this booklet. I can finish the booklet tomorrow, Friday. And I had this thought run through my mind. And I'm emotional because it's so fresh, and it means much more to me than it could you. This is my life. You're listening to a sermon, so it can't mean what to you what it means to me. But the thought ran through my mind. Before you go back there into that room where you're going to write this booklet, why don't you sit before the Lord for 30 minutes? And the first thought I had was, I don't have time to sit before the Lord for 30 minutes. I've already read my Bible and done my devotional, and I've prayed some. But I need to sit before the Lord like tonight when I get home from church. It'll be relaxed. But I felt it in my heart. Just sit before the Lord for 30 minutes. What do you have to lose, 30 minutes? And so I did. Got in the sofa, on the sofa, sitting in there, looking at the picture, and I said, now, Lord, I just feel led to do my 30-minute sitting before you right now. And so there I was sitting, and I was praying. I normally have about three three or four things, maybe five, that are important to me when I'm doing this 30-minute deal. And so I just kind of mentioned them to the Lord. God, remember this. (laughs) God, I want to talk to you just for a moment about this. So that's what I was doing, and I finished the 30 minutes, and I knew I had done what God told me to do, and I thought, well, I'll go work on my booklet. I'll probably write four or five pages, and then I won't be able to write anymore because i got to do this sermon for tonight. I went back into into my room where I write these things, sat down, started writing. Thoughts coming to me. I hadn't thought about writing. Pages, just turning pages. I write them out. I don't like to write on a computer. I would like to write it out longhand. Just writing them out handed. And I'm telling you this. By 3 o'clock this afternoon, I completely finished that book. Completely finished that book. And I tell you this. Had I skipped that 30 minutes of sitting before the Lord, there's not a way in the world that that would have happened. And so tonight, I'm not even going to finish this sermon. We'll come back later and do the rest of these four points. That ought to make you happy. Somebody say amen. He said he's stopping right now. Because I think if I go on, by the time I finish point five, we'll have all forgotten where I am right now. And where I am right now is to say, listen to me, if you in your life are between chapter one and chapter 42, you're out there in the middle of it all. And you say, yeah, but Job, look, look how Job's story turned out. Such a happy ending. Remember this. Job didn't know how his story was going to turn out. We read Job, we know how it ended. He didn't know that, and you don't know exactly how yours is going to end. Friend, let me say this to you tonight. Not knowing is part of the test. When you've had a loss... And you say, God, how's this going to work out? God, when's this going to work out? God, what is the end of the story? And heaven is silent, and God doesn't tell you. You know what God is saying in his silence? God is saying not knowing is part of the test. And in your pain, and in your not knowing how it's all going to work out, will you have the same attitude Job had? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I encourage, you, I think God, this is where God wants this sermon to stop right here. I encourage you, wherever you may be in life, you be a worshiper of God. And if that thing David did and my modification of that with the 30 minutes, if that spoke to you tonight, I encourage you, even tonight, I did it last night, I think it I, I did it last night from like 10:05 to 1035. I forfeited the evening news last night to sit before the Lord. And I can assure you it was much more relaxing than the evening news. Nobody got shot when I was sitting before the Lord. Or well, if they did, I didn't have to hear about it. And I had to hear about all the crime and all the political stuff that gets everybody upset just sitting before the... You know what happens? The difference between going to the Lord with a list... Now, again, that's noth- there's nothing wrong with that. When I walk on my treadmill, I have a mental list. That I pray through for people, specific requests. There's a place for that. But the difference between a list and sitting before the Lord with no agenda, no list, no pressure. 30 minutes of doing that, you will be totally relaxed. Even if you don't say anything to God. And even if God doesn't say anything to you. That's not even the point. The point is not how much you pray or even what insight God might... The point is, you're sitting before the Lord. And one thing I loved about John Bassanio's book, he said, you know, there's a lot of different ways to pray and you can pray this long or that long. He said what he learned in his life was, if you even have a desire to pray, God will honor that desire. And so... I encourage you tonight or tomorrow, if you don't want to do it tonight, do it tomorrow. Think about it. Do it sometime. Maybe don't even do it every day. Do it once a week. But sit before the Lord for 30 minutes and see what might happen in your life. Amen? Father, I thank you for the example of old Job. Lost everything, and yet he just kept on worshiping you. Because, God, the most important thing in Job's life wasn't what he had. The most important thing in Job's life was you. And I pray that that would be true for us too. With your head bowed and eyes closed tonight, in your own words, would you ask God to make you a true worshiper of Him? A true worshiper. And if the example of David. If that gripped you tonight, see, like that gripped me. God brought that verse to my mind the other night. May not, have, may, you may hear me tell that story. It doesn't do anything to you, okay? Well, then that's just that doesn't apply for you right now. But if that in any way spoke to you tonight, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Would you just say, God, I don't know if I can do that for thirty minutes. Maybe I can do it for ten. Do it for ten. I'd better sit before the Lord for 10 minutes not sit before Him at all. But would you just say, God, I want to try that tonight or tomorrow, this weekend, sometime. So God, just as I'm going through my evening at home, as I'm going through my day, or God, whenever it's the right time, probably won't even be the same time every day. We don't need this to get too regimented. It'll become a chore. But God, just, say, just pray this to God. Say, God, if ever and whenever You want me to sit before you in silence. Just put it on my heart.